I'm going to try to continue with the idea of CSI. Kind of like that. I'm just trying to prove evidence. Today we'll look at even the demons knew who he is. And also, a second parallel to this would be picking the right time. Jesus knew what time things needed to be done. And when you think about his exact life, he knew the teachings that he started back when he was young in the temples. And from the time that he was born and grew and went into a, as a child into the temple's teaching and then starting his Sermon on the Mount and everything had a time period. And you'll see that as we go through this, that Jesus knew the times. Imagine going into a bank, innocently filling out a withdrawal slip and within minutes being arrested by the police. When Ron Chance filled out a withdrawal slip in an American bank, he had no idea that handcuffs would soon be placed upon him. It took a while to straighten out the story. The teller had pressed the silent alarm button. After turning the withdrawal slip over that he had handed her with the words, this is a holdup written on it. As it turned out, some wise guy had gone into the bank and written, this is a holdup on the back of every withdrawal slip sitting on the counter. It was someone's idea of a practical joke. A few words written on a piece of paper caused a terrible, embarrassing, reactionary chain of events. The gospel is a chain reaction, isn't it? Which echoes throughout the corridors of eternity. In the beginning, God. I don't know of many people in the world that don't know those words. That doesn't mean they follow it. But you have to admit, just about everybody knows the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created. Today's gospel comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. In this passage, we see a large crowd following Jesus. He heals many of them. Here's what the passage reads. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and uh, Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. Um, wait a minute. I'm going to stop that for a minute. Impure spirits, like demons. Even the demons stop. And what do they say? You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders 
not to tell others about him. In this passage, we see Jesus withdrawing to the lake with his disciples. He's seeking solitude from the crowds that have been following him. But even in this moment of rest, we see Jesus' fame has spread, hasn't it? And a large, a large crowd from Galilee follows him to the lake. We are told that people have come from many different regions. And they are all seeking to be healed by Jesus. As Jesus begins to heal those who are sick, we see the impure spirits recognize him as the Son of God, falling down before him and crying out. It's not real often that you have your enemy falling down and saying how great you are, worshiping you, acknowledging that you are far superior to them. But we see this here. Even the evil spirits acknowledge exactly who Jesus is. Not to spit on him, not to mock him. They fall down before him and cry out. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus, you know, why has he withdrawn? Perhaps he knows that his message will be misunderstood. Why does he tell the demons not to tell others? Again, maybe misunderstood or that the people will come to him for the wrong reasons. What can we learn from this passage? Well, first we see that Jesus' healing power is real and it draws people to him. But more than that, we see that Jesus's message wasn't accepted by everyone. He chooses to reveal himself to those who are open to him, that are going to accept him with the truth. Hence the, the verses that Jesus said, he who worships the Father must worship in what? Spirit and in truth. His message for some was hidden. They did not want to receive or were not ready to receive it. As we reflect on this passage, we ask ourselves, are we open to receiving Jesus's message? Are we open to what the Bible tells us? Are we open to messages, to prayer, and to what God reveals to us? Are we willing to follow Jesus? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It won't always be easy. Jesus talked about the cross he had to bear. And notice he used symbolically those same words, take up your cross and follow me. We look at how we accept Jesus. We see in this book in um, Mark chapter 3, the chapter starts with the event of a man with a withered hand. And after verse 12, it goes on into the appointing of the 12 apostles. Luke's gospel refers to this period of time with two words. He calls it those days. Matthew's gospel takes a little more time to record details during the specific time period. 
he has more specifics or a different view than Luke or Mark. Remember, though, that the Gospel of Mark is very different from the other two Gospels. For one thing, it is quite brief. Mark, from time to time, just skims over some periods with just a glance. This is one of those places in which Mark seems to be hurrying on the next major event in Jesus' ministry, which would be the appointment of the 12 apostles. Still, there may be something of value to be learned even in this brief period, a brief description of this event. Not a great deal of detail, yet in this period of time, I'd like to notice that some interesting things happen. The first thing I wonder in looking at this section of scripture is, why did Jesus withdraw from the synagogue and Capernaum? In thinking about this question, I realize it was hardly from fear of confrontation. We, we know that Jesus isn't afraid of the people because eventually we know that he is not going to hide and pretty well knows when he's praying in the garden that you have to picture that he knows that that is going to be the time. When his, when his sweat is like blood and the anguish that he has as he prays to the Father. And he prays not just once or twice, but praying three times, asking the disciples that three were with them there to stay awake with him. And we know that at that time, he knew what was going to happen. So he's not backing off because of confrontation. At this time, opposition was being very serious and more focused. We can read in Mark 3 and 6, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. This alliance with the Herodians shows just how serious opposition was becoming. According to many scholars, the Herodians were a secular group of people, what you'd say like a political party. They had little interest in spiritual things. There was no common interest with the Pharisees. We still see this action today, don't we? When people today have something they want to accomplish, they don't necessarily care about who they align themselves with to get that job done, especially if those individuals are going to help them obtain their goal. You'll see them, you talk about people being two-faced. I always like it when somebody says they talk out of both sides of their mouth. I, I try to take things literally. I've tried that. I stood in front of the mirror. Got to talk to Dylan. Talk out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. But you know what they mean. And it's sad that there are people that you will even say, you can't tell them anything because, you know, they'll just go and tell somebody else or they'll, they'll take sides to whatever is best for them. And sadly, don't we see a lot of that in the world today? You think about it, it would have been easy for Jesus if that was just his goal to be popular. He could have just went along with both sides. The demons, we know Satan tries to pull whoever he can on his side. We know that the demons, though, recognize Jesus for exactly who he was. I want to point that out to say, Jesus didn't take both sides, did he? Jesus had a set way 
To know the Father, you know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus had an established way. And even though he knows that he's going to be put to death because of it, he was true to that. We know, sadly, Peter had a tendency to sway one point in his life to save himself. He swayed. But then we know he became very strong because of it and was even put to death in a very cruel way to die for Jesus. We see this in our life today. There are people that, again, like I say, want to accomplish something, they'll pick anybody. And that's what the Herodians and the various people were doing. Jesus did not want to have a confrontation with them, which would lead immediately to his death. We see that Jesus withdrew himself. There were still things that Jesus needed to accomplish. John 2, verse 4, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to the woman, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 7 and 6. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. John 7 and 30. Then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There was a set established time. I bring this up again to show God, some people will say, well, this is the modern time. God doesn't understand time periods. You know, that was so long ago that that only applied to them. And I want to try to show you, CSI tells us, God has a set time for everything. Go back to Genesis. First day, God established this. The second day, as a mathematician, we always talk about a set sequence. When you solve an equation, step, I used to actually sing to my kids, step by step procedure. You know, if they forget steps or they just left things out, oh, no, we got to do step by step. Proofs. Everybody loved those in geometry, I'm sure. Step-by-step reasoning. And you couldn't say this one until you prove that one. So that's the type of thing we do. God has a set time period. Jesus' time wasn't come yet. Could Jesus have taken himself down off the cross? Why, certainly, if he had the power to do that. But that wasn't God's plan. That is not what God had planned. We had set ages, you know, the the... Patriarch age, the Mosaic age, the Christian age. God has had it established the whole time. John 8 and 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. And all these things, my hour has not yet come, Jesus says. Let's go to the 12th chapter of John. In John 12 and 23, But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Everything's in order. Jesus teaches. Jesus heals. Jesus shows what we should be doing as Christians as an example. And then when his time comes, he will do the ultimate sacrifice 
for each and every one of us. And then in 13.1 of John, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved to the end. What does he say? My hour has not yet come. The hour is come. See the difference? Now the hour is come. Before this, the hour has not come. And then at this point, as he realizes, the hour now has come. I'm sure when he's sitting with the disciples at the Last Supper, he tells them, as we have, do this in remembrance of me. He tells them he's going to be going. John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Now there is God's plan. Not only is Jesus leaving, but he's going, why? Because he's preparing a place so in future we all can go with him. So between that statement, we look at what Jesus is accomplishing. Between the time of my time has not yet come and now my time has come that he must die for us. During this period, we know the great multitudes followed Jesus during our time of our text. Mark tells us that great throngs of people followed Jesus as he left the synagogue in the, the city, and he, he apparently went directly to a familiar seaside. Jesus could teach in a synagogue. He could teach in the temple. But we know that Jesus could also teach on a boat out on the seashore. As we listen to the teachings of Jesus, we discover that many, many of his illustrations came from these various settings that he had in nature. What does he say? Consider the lilies of the field that they grow, that they neither toil nor they spin. In my mind, Jesus is sitting on the side of a mountain and he's looking at all the flowers growing. Today, we haven't seen it yet, but I just came from Virginia. I could show you on my phone the beautiful, my, the first thing my wife said is, oh, you got to get pictures of these flowers and the um, cherry blossoms. And I mean, it's just beautiful down there. And we think about what we experience from God every year. We get to see his creation. And people, I'm one of them, that worry. And what does Jesus say? We worry about you know, how we're going to survive and, and we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And Jesus talks about the beauty and how the Father takes care of that and how much more important we are to him. So we think about the things that Jesus says. Consider the lilies. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What beautiful lessons Jesus taught. And now Mark tells us the crowd was a great multitude. People surrounding him, pressing against him. So great was the pressure that Mark notes that Jesus was concerned that they might crush him, according to the New King James Version. Jesus made an arrangement with his disciples to provide for a small boat so that he could teach them. In the fourth chapter of Mark's Gospel, at verse 1, there was a time when the small boat became his pulpit. In Mark 4.1, it says, He began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat um, it in, in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. 
We can see in our minds, we can picture Jesus in a small boat teaching for them. On the occasion described in our text in the third chapter of Mark, it did not seem to be a pulpit that he was seeking. It seemed to be a method of escaping the press if escape was necessary. But what does Jesus do? Just because of the number of people around, he goes into the boat and he teaches the multitude from there. Maybe, we don't know, that might be the best thing. You know, the, the amphitheater theater style of more people on the hillside and so on. But we see this and we read this. And then it makes me think about this. How many people came flocking to see Jesus, to understand what he's doing? There's an old song that says, I love to tell the story to those who know it best of Jesus and his glory. And then we ask the question, how interested are we in today in what Jesus has to say? These people didn't have cars to jump in and fly or, you know, or to drive or to, to fly in the various means. Their method of transportation was slow. But it talks about how people came from all regions to see Jesus. Think about the length of time Jesus probably spoke to them. You look at the Sermon on the Mount and various times that Jesus talked to those that gathered from day, throughout the day till night. They were interested in what Jesus had to say. Then we ask ourselves in our luxury today, do we have that same interest? What about that story that Jesus teaches? Is it worth telling? Is it worth hearing? I love to tell that story. Do we switch it around and say, I love to hear that story of Jesus and his love? How convenient our faith has become. How comfortable we have become in the conveniences of our society today. And we have that necessary, the necessity of the miracles that Jesus had. We know that Jesus taught to show who he was. Then when Pilate, think about Herod, Pilate sending Jesus to Herod. What does Herod say? Show me, turn the water you know, into wine or, or show me some miracle so that I could believe. There are probably people today that would say that. God, if you do exist, I need you to do this so I know that you exist and, and I can believe. What well, was Jesus' words? I've done all these things. You know, I have lived and done all these examples, healed these people. There were all these things done. God's word. God says in Hebrews, the first part that we've been studying on Sunday morning, in the first part, how shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation that God has set up for us? God's beyond showing us miracles as they knew it back then. The reason I say it that way is, I'm sure we all see God present in our lives. I mean, I, we, we say prayers, and um, it was a prayer that somebody heard my mom, to be honest with you. And I don't want uh, to talk more because I could get choked up, but my brother and I are convinced that if the neighbors 
on the one side would not have heard her and called the other neighbor, my mother would not have made it through the night. She was freezing, pain and everything. And, you know, it was dropping to 37. It was damp on the ground. She was laying there. And I, we just knew that that would not have happened. We know that it was God's grace that that acted in that. And I'm sure we can all look at instances in our life and the things that, you know, we can look at when you least expect it or, you know, you pray, pray. It may not be on our timetable, but we know there's evidence there. And that's what we look at. So in this sort of thing, I think that the people to whom Mark is referring to in this chapter um, thought as well, look at, uh, I'd like to look at verse 22. Jesus turned around and when he saw her, remember a woman touching him, knowing the faith that she would have of being healed, Jesus turned around and he saw her and he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. She saw and believed that if all she had to do was just touch his garment, that she would be, you know, something would happen and he would heal. Just touch that garment. In the society, she knew that she was not a person that should be touching Jesus. You know, the different um, types of groups of people and the, the political stature and so on and the um, the level of um, financial and so on. But she knew that she just touched. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. And a woman was made well that same hour. We realize the faith, the strength that people had. And God encouraged us in our time frame to have that faith. Taught in Jesus' time and how much more now that we have the scriptures and to know all of these examples, all of Jesus' teachings, how much more we should believe. So I invite you to turn to, um, getting near the end here, John 20, verses 30 and 31. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, verses we all know. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written and here is the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is why Jesus did these teachings. That is why Jesus did that. In Acts 2 and 22, it tells us, here in the part of the sermon that was preached on the day of Pentecost, men and of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, by wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. This same Jesus, who you saw performing miracles and wonders and signs, the same Jesus, him being delivered by the determined counsel and for knowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and you have put him to death. Why were they miracles? To confirm the claims of Jesus. Why in the very beginning, when Jesus was baptized, did God say, 
this is my beloved son. That was all part of God's plan. He was baptized. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus had no sin, but Jesus was baptized to show, to carry out God's plan of what we need to do. He was went down into the water with John, and God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to John 3, 2, where we find a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man should have been part of the opposition. Apparently, though, Nicodemus had an open heart and he had an open mind. We hope that we don't know, but we know that this man, it says, come to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, you would ask, how did Nicodemus know this? He was in the group that's opposed to Jesus. But he goes on to explain, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here's one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin against Jesus saying that. We've got demons falling down and acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. But yet today, we have individuals that will not believe that and will not accept that. So today, we look at ourselves and we ask, what do we do with Jesus? We, why were there miracles? As a confirmation. The Word was made flesh, as we read in John 1.14. Jesus, the Word was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. We know that Satan tries to mount an incredible offensive using the demons of the underworld, the unclean spirits, but we know that they saw Jesus, fell down before him, and cried out, You are the Son of God. So in conclusion, the fact is, however, that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he referred himself as the Son of God. He was the Son of Man because he came with a birth. We came as a teacher. He grew up and showed exactly as a human. He went through the human pain and suffering and gave up his life for each one of us. The question for us is, what are we going to do with Jesus? What will we do with this fact? What will our decision be when we think about what Jesus has done for us? Because Jesus is the Son of God, some of us have a decision to make about our initial relationship and what it's going to be with him whether we are going to be baptized or not. Others have a decision to make about the extent with our discipleship and Jesus and the manifest in our lives. Do we want to be fully committed disciples? These are all decisions that need to be made by us based on the simple fact that Jesus is the Son of God. It is a joy that he entrusted the acknowledgement of that fact to people like us. We are earthen, earthen vessels in which the greatest message ever heard has been placed so that we might proclaim it. Jesus is the Son of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the very beginning, Jesus said, blessed are you for all these things. And then he said, you are the light of the world. 
We learn from the New Testament how to be saved. We need to hear the word. We need to believe in Jesus. We need to repent of our sins. We need to confess our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and we need to be baptized for the remission of our sins. If we follow these steps, the Lord adds us to his church. Perhaps there is someone in the assembly today with that need to be buried with Christ in baptism. If you have never done this, we urge you to do this today. If anyone has the need or desires the prayers of the faithful Christians to pray for you, we encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing this morning.